All right. Well, we are still in the Gospel of John. The lecturer has been taking us through these very lengthy stories in the Gospel of John, and this is no exception. Uh, today we're in John 11, and the uh, lectionary text is John 11, 1 through 44. So uh, this will be a three-hour sermon just for me to read the passage and then uh, try to get through it. So, but this is, this is one of my favorite stories in Scripture. I love this story. Um, like all the ones we've been having the last few weeks, there's so much here, uh, and so it's hard to choose a lane. But uh, let's talk through the story of uh, what we'll call the resuscitation of, uh, of Lazarus, and then we will uh, get in on something that um, I was obsessing over this week, and I don't know, hopefully you'll connect to it as well. It says this, John 11, uh, starting in verse 1. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha, Mary was the one who anointed the Lord with perfume and wiped his feet with her hair. Her brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent a message to Jesus, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. Rather, it is for God's glory so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Accordingly, though Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, after having heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just trying to stone you and you're going to go there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Those who walk during the day do not stumble because they see the light of this world. But those who walk at night stumble because the light is not in them. After saying this, he told them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he'll be all right. Jesus, however, had been speaking about his death, but they thought he was referring merely to sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. For your sake, I am glad I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Thomas, who was called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let's go also that we may die with him. We'll get back to that Thomas thing in a couple weeks because that's just bad to the bone what he just said right there. Verse 17, when Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, some two miles away, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them, out, uh, to console them about their brother. When Martha heard, heard that Jesus was coming, she went out and met him while Mary stayed at home. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died, but even now I know that God will give you whatever you ask for. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one coming into the world. When she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary and told her privately, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come to the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. The Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary get up and go quickly to go out. They followed her because they thought she was going to the tomb to weep there. When Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she knelt at his feet and said to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was greatly disturbed in the spirit and deeply moved. He said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. 
Jesus began to weep. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of a blind man have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, again greatly disturbed, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone was lying against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, already there's a stench because, it has been, because he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus looked upwards and said, Father, I thank you for having heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I have said this for the sake of the crowd standing here so that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, he cried out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet bound with strips of cloth and his face wrapped in a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. For the word of God in scripture, for the word of God among us, for the word of God within us, thanks be to God. Again, I know these readings the last couple of weeks in John have been uh, doozies. Uh, these big, beautiful, long stories that uh, we preachers both love and hate. Um, I mean, the good news for a preacher is there's a lot of material here. There's plenty of things to choose from. There's no scarcity of stuff to preach about. The bad news, there's a lot of material here. There's a lot of things to choose from. There's nothing, no scarcity to what to preach about. I think each of the last four weeks I've said we could spend several weeks in this story, and today is no exception. But I think I want to spend our time today focused on the haunting thoughts or the haunting questions everyone in this story but Jesus seemed to be struggling with. Although to be fair, Jesus will struggle with the same question later on. I want to start off by asking you, have you ever had a question that just haunted you? Like you couldn't shake it. Maybe it was something big and deep and serious and philosophical. Maybe it was something silly. I don't know. But have you ever had a haunting question? I remember as a kid, uh, I loved the Calvin and Hobbes comic strip. That was right in my wheelhouse, right in my time. And some of you, you guys know what I'm talking about? A lot of you? Okay. Loved that comic strip. About a boy, his pet stuffed tiger that kind of came to life when no adults were around and they had these great adventures and stuff. It was right in my wheelhouse. I loved it. Every day, I was excited to look in the newspaper. Uh, I didn't care about current events. I wanted to see the Calvin and Hobbes, right? So I kept up with it when they started doing the books. I got the books, read them all the time, loved them. I remember a particular one of the Calvin and Hobbes uh, comics uh, when I was probably nine or ten that really got me. Like, it really made me laugh. I thought it was funny. I showed it to everyone. I wanted everyone to read it. Um, and it had a question in it. And, and I, and I uh, stole this from the Internet. And it's on the screen, I think. We do one at a time. So, or two at a time. He's walking with Hobbes, and he says, The more you think about things, the weirder they seem. Take this milk. Why do we drink cow milk? He said, who was the guy who first looked at a cow and said, I think I'll drink whatever comes out of these things when I squeeze them. <laughs> Isn't that weird? Hobbes says, I think conversation should be kept to a minimum until afternoon. That joke struck perfectly for an elementary mic. I thought that was the funniest thing I'd ever read. Again, told everyone about it, loved it. But it also was a bit of a haunting question to me. <laughs> I do remember, honestly, because I, I, I was a milk drinker. I drank milk all day, every day. I didn't drink water. We always had milk. And I think it was whole milk, which makes me want to gag a little bit now. But, like, I'm talking, you go out, run, sweaty, hot summer day in South Florida. I come in and just knock back some whole milk like it was nothing. I thought now makes me want to vomit. But I loved milk. 
And I do really remember laughing at this, thinking it was so funny, and then pouring that next glass of milk and being like, why am I drinking this exactly? Right? And I don't know. I, and honestly, as I was thinking about it this week, this may have been my first taste of deconstruction. This may have been the first thing that was introduced to me as a kid where it was like, we do this thing. Why exactly do we do it? And I never thought about why. And that question kind of haunted me. Why do we do this this way? And I've been asking that about pretty much everything ever since in one way or another. But milk was never quite the same after this Calvin and Hobbes. It was worth it. That joke's funny. But it was a bit of a haunting question for me in an innocent way. But I've had a bunch of these in my life in one way or another. I know when I got to seminary, I encountered a lot of haunting questions. First time I read the history of the Anabaptist movement, which I know no one in here probably cares about, but that's the thread of Christianity where like the Mennonites and the Amish come from, and there's this really interesting history there, and the theology of nonviolence and non-resistance and the way they behaved when people even were stringing them up and killing them. That introduced some questions to me that I had never thought about before and still kind of haunt me when I read the Bible and think about what Jesus taught and what Jesus might have meant when he taught that. To a large degree, this church was founded on a haunting question. We had a small group of people that got together and we started talking about what would happen if the church you have been a part of disappeared? Would anyone notice you were gone except the people that attended there? And almost all of us said, I don't think anyone would notice. And part of what formed who we are now, the weird thing that we are now, is we said, if you're going to be a church, someone should know you're there apart from the people that show up in the room on a Sunday, right? You should make a difference. That's why we adopted Hawkins. That's why we're there all the time. If we get beamed out of here tomorrow, uh, Hawkins is going to miss this community, right? It's a haunting question. It's a question we still ask ourselves to make sure we're on track. In this story, in the death and resuscitation of Lazarus, and I use that term because it's not really resurrection, although people say that. Eventually, Lazarus still died. You know, this is kind of postponed it. <laughs> but in the story of the death and resuscitation of Lazarus, there is a burning question on everyone's mind, maybe even on yours, as we read through that. It's certainly a question I've had many times in my life, and every time I read stories like this in Scripture, I usually end up asking it again. And that haunting question is, why didn't Jesus keep this disaster from happening? And not only like in the grand scheme of God being able to prevent things, but like Jesus literally waited. He knew what was going to happen in this situation, right? Why wait? Why put everyone through it? Couldn't we have just avoided the pain? And this is what everyone's wanting to know, right? The first sister comes out, Martha. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died, but I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask for. The second sister, Mary, comes out. Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. And she stops there. She doesn't have quite the faith that Jesus will still do something, maybe, that Martha does. And then the onlookers, when, uh, when he uh, starts to encounter and he begins to weep, they end up saying, could not he who opened the eyes of a blind man have kept this man from dying? Right? These onlookers who believed in his miracles, who had seen what he could do, they believed in them. And they don't understand his passivity. They don't understand why he didn't step in and do something when he, in principle, obviously should have or could have. I think we've all had this question in one form or another. I know people who have lost faith over it. There have been libraries of ink spilled trying to answer this question. Now, in this instance, in this story, Jesus uh, himself has done something intentionally. He waits to show up, and he kind of gives this hint that I'm trying to portray some larger lesson here. People are going to 
learn something that they wouldn't have learned otherwise. And even if that is a good reason in this particular story, certainly that cannot be a good explanation for all the suffering, all the pain, all the loss that causes people to ask this burning question. In this particular story, even if it is true, only a couple of people are actually privy to that information from Jesus. The effect is still heart-wrenching to those who don't know what's going on or why it's happening. It's all very uncomfortable. You're probably uncomfortable thinking about it right now. I'm definitely questioning whether or not this is the direction I should have gone with the sermon. All of us would love to have the answer to that question. Why doesn't God just stop it? I know all of us want to hear that question, so what I want to do tonight is just answer it once and for all. I'm just kidding. I'm not gonna do it. <laughs> I can't. I don't know the answer to it. My job tonight, uh, the job I'm giving myself tonight is not to give you a clean-cut answer in that. In fact, I find virtually every attempt at an explanation of this dilemma to be very problematic. Either God usually comes off as some kind of manipulative controller who seems to somehow end up authoring evil things in the world, which I'm not okay with, or God ends up as some kind of ineffectual, apathetic, absentee parent whose hands are completely tied to our struggles. And neither of those options works, at least not for me. Whatever the mysterious space is between those two poles, Whatever, however it might fall in between there, I'm not qualified to parse it out and explain it. I don't know an easy wrap-up answer for that. I don't think one exists. I don't know the answer to why in these kind of situations. I don't believe anyone does. In fact, I'm highly suspect of anyone that claims to do, and I suspect, or I would actually ask you to be suspect of them as well. I don't know why God does the things in the way God does things. I don't know why it happens. But I do think that this story points to a larger trend with God that says something about God's character that I think is worth noting and celebrating. And I want to explore that today. Again, I don't know why. I don't have the answer to the question why. But it seems to me, and this story is a good example, also my life, <laughs> I feel like, has been a good example of this. It seems to me that God is less in the prevention business than in the resurrection business. Again, it seems to me that God is less in the prevention business or the protection business than the resurrection business. I don't know about you, but I'm personally now, I've gotten to a point in my life where I've stopped expecting God to prevent bad things from happening in my life. There was a time when I thought that was the deal. I do my quiet time. I do the things I'm supposed to do. I act like I'm supposed to act. I'd be a good Christian boy. You take care of things for me. You're the big brother who takes care of the bullies in life. I no longer believe that. I think I'd have to be quite a narcissist, actually, to believe that I was so special as to be exempt from the very same things that everyone else struggles with. The world is heartbreaking at times, and I don't get to opt out or get protection from it. I've already had a share of it myself, as you have, and I have no doubt that more will come down the road later on, even though I don't really care to think about it. I would love to be insulated from it. I would love guaranteed prevention and protection. But if Jesus didn't get it, I don't suppose I should expect it either. In fact, one of the things I love about the passion narrative 
And I love that Jesus gets out, Jesus gets on his knees, and Jesus prays before his own crucifixion for this cup to pass. So he's not asking the question in this story with Lazarus, but eventually Jesus asks the same question. Can we just prevent this? Jesus doesn't get that protection. He doesn't get that prevention, though. Jesus gets resurrection. And while I don't quite understand it, I don't know why. I'm not sure why that's a better thing to do. I'm beginning to have faith that it is. We don't get a big brother in the sky who removes all the dangers in our path. We get a God who becomes a fellow human, who bleeds and weeps and dies with us and then pushes through death to the other side. We get an incarnate God, fully God, but also fully living within the constraints and burdens of humanity. We get a God who is with us. We get a God who makes beauty from ugliness. We get a resurrection God. And this does give a nod to something about God's nature that I think is pretty amazing. Instead of choosing to operate as some kind of cosmic enforcer, which I am assuming God could do, instead of choosing to operate as this enforcer, overpowering the universe and enforcing safety and security, God seems to embrace a different kind of model. Not this overpowering thing, but a power under posture. God enters into our pain and suffering and redeems it from within. Why doesn't God just overpower it from the start? Why doesn't God just prevent all the bad things that are happening and being done by others? I am not sure. Maybe, maybe you can't love and control at the same time. I don't really know. I feel pretty certain, though, that God has chosen the more difficult of those two paths. Resurrection is far more costly than control, prevention, protection. I know that it's a harder path for me. It's infinitely harder for me to try to learn how to be with and to redeem from within than it is to try and rule from above. That kind of truly empathetic, incarnate love is seemingly impossible to me. And I think all of you that are parents of young kids know exactly what I'm talking about. I don't know how to navigate that as a dad. My default position as a dad is the power over controlling mom. I said it. I'm dad. You do it, and we're all better for it. It's really that simple. I know things you don't know, child. I see things you can't possibly see, child. I am the captain. I will steer the ship. You just salute and say, yes, sir, and we will all be fine. That's really all the house needs for peace and prosperity. And it works just like that in my house, all the time. Now in my better moments as a dad, as few and far between as they might be, I find some space to empathize with whatever is really troubling my child. But more often than not, I struggle to care about the exact same things they care about. And I love my kids. I would die for my kids without question. But mostly what my kids care about doesn't matter. It's dumb stuff. I care that my child is sad. I want them to be happy. I'm not a psychopath. I promise. 
However, I cannot possibly find a way to care about the balloon that is now floating away. It just doesn't matter to me. I don't have the capacity to feel the pain, the deep pain associated with cruelly being asked to brush your teeth again every day. That is hard. And I can't quite get there. I don't know how to have my heart broken that I don't get every toy in every store every time. I don't know how to get my heart broken over the fact that I can't get McDonald's every time we pass one, even if we just ate. Now, I know by their reactions that it's near the end of the world. I know by their reactions they are suffering deeply, and it matters to them. It's like a little death to them. I know these things, and I love them, and I care for them, and I want them to be happy but I can't possibly care about what they care about in the same way they do. Because it doesn't matter that much to me. I have a context that they don't have by virtue of being older than them. I can see things from a perspective that they cannot. I know that balloon would have been forgotten about in five minutes regardless, and I know there's 10 billion other ones that can replace it. I know that toy won't actually make them happy. They'll forget about it soon. I know too much McDonald's actually makes you feel like garbage. Just the right amount is perfect, but too much makes you feel like garbage. And I also know there's a McDonald's every quarter mile in this country now. I know that one hour more of video games is not all she needs and will never ask for more. I know that's a lie. I know that's not true. That's from the devil. I have context that my kids don't have. I have too much context to care about the content that they are valuing so much. Does that make sense? So I choose power over. I make sure the balloon is tied so tight around their wrist their little fingers turn purple. I drive the long way so we don't see the McDonald's. I avoid the toy aisle or tell them that it burned down. I choose power over because I don't know how to get into their mess with them. This is what I think is so miraculous about how the incarnate God behaves in this story. Jesus has all the context that no one else has. Jesus knows that Lazarus will be resuscitated. Jesus knows that Lazarus will walk out of that tomb. Jesus knows that he's not really dead. Jesus knows that everyone gathered there in order to mourn with the sisters will instead be throwing a party with them shortly. Jesus knows that those tears of grief will be tears of laughter really soon. Not one day in the great resurrection. In a moment, it's going to happen. Jesus knows these things. Jesus has all the context. Jesus can see things from a perspective that no one else can. And yet... And yet he also cares deeply about the content that is hurting them, even though he has all the context. Again, verse 33 and 34, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was greatly disturbed in the spirit and was deeply moved. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. 35, Jesus began to weep. And if you do the right version, I think it's NIV, it's just Jesus wept. Shortest verse in the Bible, two for Jesus wept. 
When we read that it says he was moved deeply and disturbed, the Greek literally, what that means literally, is that he snorts with anger. I don't know why we don't use that in English. That's so much better. Jesus snorts with anger. It's that deep, guttural sound when things are so wrong and hurt so much that words don't work. It's that groan that happens when you're really bereaved. It's that some kind of core, base, fundamental anger at what is wrong with the world and what should not have happened, at what is hurting those we love. Jesus is not just someone who easily cries when someone else gets emotional. Jesus is feeling this with those he loves. Even though he knows the larger context of what is happening, even though he knows that this is not the tragedy they think it is, he truly suffers with them simply because they suffer and he loves them. Christ holds all of eternity, all of creation, all of history, and yet is still with us. I don't even know how to categorize that or make sense of it. Perhaps this is part of what it means to say that God is love. But it seems to me that this choice, that a God who acts like this, that this is much harder than control. This is a miracle. And I think it's worth kind of celebrating here. I'm not sure I'll ever really understand it. I will certainly always have questions about it, but I do love it. I'm not sure I'll ever stop wishing that sometimes God would just choose prevention over resurrection. It would sure be easier, it seems like. That God, when I decide it's appropriate, of course, would just stop the hard things before they happen rather than enter into the difficulty with me and try to redeem it from beside me. I don't know why this is the way God has chosen. I don't know why God chooses resurrection. And I'm sure I will absolutely still question it sometimes. But we can still revel in the beauty of incarnate love. We can marvel at a God who has all the context and still embraces our content. We can still celebrate a God who truly is with us. A God who has chosen to ensure that we never suffer alone. Who bleeds with us, walks with us, and weeps with us who snorts in anger at the same things that take our breath away, who chooses love over control, a God who chooses resurrection when it seems like death might have the final answer, a God who is thankfully a much better parent than I am. Let's pray. God, we confess that there is... Um, much we don't understand about why things happen the way they do. So often in our lives, uh, the big burning question for us is, why did you let this happen? Did you let this happen? Did you mean for this to happen? Did you want for this to happen? And God, those are questions we just don't have an answer to. And while we cannot have those answers, if they exist at all. We can't have a God who is with us. God, may we never stop marveling at the fact that you hold all of eternity in your hands, that you're, from your vantage point, all of history can be seen and understood. And despite 
that context that you have and we can't possibly imagine, you are still a God who chooses to be with us. You still care about the content of our little lives. Your heart still breaks when our heart breaks. Your tears fall when our tears fall. You bleed with us. You weep with us. You are with us. God, may we never stop marveling at that miracle. And we, may we find some way in this world to start to resemble that kind of love. God, we do love you. We ask all these things in your name. Amen.